Welcome back to Getting Handsy by Low Country Hands. We took the summer off to enjoy some time with our families and just to kind of hopefully find a better sound quality for y'all. We got some great feedback, but we just wanted to go that extra mile. Philip, what'd you do in your time off? It was a lazy bum, man. I took advantage of my summer. Spent time with the kids and family. We got in a couple little trips here or there. Um, kids got over their little bout of COVID and uh, uh, unscathed out of that for the most part and just kind of stayed busy with work. What about you? That, about the same. We did um, a little beach vacation down there, your, your neck of the woods. We went down to Rosemary, Panama City area. Enjoyed it. Had beautiful weather. Um, you know, but my daughter, she just got over COVID actually a week ago. And she ended up, you know, she had, she had a very mild case. So that worked out pretty good. And everybody else in the family seems to be doing pretty good. But, you know, a lot a lot's changed since our last episode. A lot's happened. We've had live conferences. I mean, that's been amazing just being around people that, that love what we do. I mean, I, I really feel like it was kind of a geek fest because the first live conference I went to, I mean, people were just all in it. Um, that was the Wisconsin hand experience. Uh, they put on a great conference up there, really enjoyed that. And then the Georgia hand and upper extremity special interest group puts on one here in Savannah every year. And um, that's where I met our speaker at today, Dr. Jim Wagner um, with alphabet soup behind his name. But so he's going to come on today and talk a little bit about blood flow restriction. Jim, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, I, hey, how you doing? Uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on today, Bob and Phil. You know, it's, uh, it's exciting. Again, I met you down in Georgia. Um, that was an awesome time. It was one of the first times I've been out since, again, the lockdowns and all that craziness and stuff. So, um, you know, it was great. So, um, again, my name is Jim Wagner. I am an occupational therapist. I'm a certified hand therapist and a strength and conditioning specialist. So I've been in the clinical, been a clinic in uh, upper extremity uh, clinic for the last 27 years. Um, I've done a little bit of brain injury for first two years in there um, with Lake Erie, Lake Erie Institute of Rehab. Um, so it did, it was, but again, it was a lot of uh, musculoskeletal trauma and stuff at the time. Um, and then got my interest into the upper extremity full-time after that. Um, you know, I've been, uh, like I said, a clinician for about 27 years. Um, I'm our team leader for our hand center here up in the Southern tier of New York state. Uh, had the opportunity to travel across the country with uh, Hawk Grips, teaching some instrument-assisted soft tissue mobility. Uh, taught some uh, level ones and level twos. Uh, also taught some uh, um, kinesiology taping, cupping, different things like that. Um, had the opportunity to teach and still teach. I'm teaching kinesiology right now at our CUCA College uh, Occupational Therapy Program. And uh, teach at Ithaca College as well, uh, uh, taught a uh, differential diagnosis upper uh, cervical to hand course up over there. So I love to teach. It's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, like I said, I'm going to have some opportunities. I'll be able to go to the Wisconsin hand experience here this next year and uh, looking forward to getting out there too. Very excited about that. So um, just meeting all kinds of cool people and stuff out there. But uh, anyways, that's kind of a, kind of a breakdown. I've got uh, two daughters as well. Um, uh, actually, one of mine, my oldest is getting over COVID and my wife is getting over COVID. Absolutely. She actually got vaccinated. So um, kind of interesting. But um, so my oldest is going to be a physical therapist at some point. And uh, my youngest, we're just trying to figure out to get her out of bed in the morning. <laughs> That's Same here. I understand. Stuff, right. How different they are. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, one of these days, I'm going to have to get up there to your neck of the woods. Maybe go, go to one of the classes that you teach at the college. Oh, it's a lot of fun. It's weird. It's a, it's, it's a, a weird teaching at the same college I was, I graduated from 27 years ago. So, you know, the, the students are kind of whining and I'm like, eh, like, it's a lot of information. And I'm like, listen, man, if I can do it, you can do it. So right. <laughs> if, I can, if I can get back here, there's hope for you all. So, you know, I majored right. so, in, uh, weightlifting and, uh, in beer at, at the time. So, um, you know, here I am. <laughs> oh, how things change. Right. 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 <laughs> So our goal today is to discuss blood flow restriction so practitioners can be more informed and have basically a clearer vision on deciding the reasons why they want to use it, how they should apply it, as well as understanding the safety issues associated with it. And that's kind of why we had Jim on. Um, myself, I'm not very experienced in it. I've done a little bit. Uh, Philip, I believe that, I don't know, you haven't done, used it a whole lot, have you? Uh, no, I have not. I've, uh, All right. You know been to a couple of little mini talks and things like that. And it's come up in some different, um, uh, you know, like little ad lib talks at some of the conferences. And we had a director of a very short lived director that, uh, that kind of dabbled in it. So that's, that's the extent of my knowledge. Okay. Oh, well, I guess we'll jump right in. So, you know, Jim, what is, 
what is blood flow restriction at its simplest form and how, how is it performed? What is the idea behind it? So blood flow restriction training, um, there's really a, a ton of evidence for it. It's one of the um, most researched probably interventions that we have within our tool bag. It's been around for quite a while. Um, I shouldn't say uh, quite a while, I guess since the, since the early 70s. Um, and it emerged with Dr. Sato, uh, who was a, um, a, a, a Japanese powerlifter bodybuilder. So it's, it's in its essence in its early form has been around for a while, but it's only over the last maybe 10, 15, 20 years or so has really begun to become more popular in the, in the West. Um, so in its essence, really what it is, it's either use of a band or a cuff to restrict blood flow. And I'm talking about restrict mostly arterial outflow. It's not the restriction of arterial inflow. It's the restriction of venous outflow. So what we're looking at here, then I, use, I like to use the word blood flow restriction training. And some people use occlusion training. What that does, it kind of gives off a negative connotation, kind of freaks people out a little bit. I don't want to occlude anything. So um, I, I was looking at it a long time ago and reading about it, but didn't really jump on the bandwagon until probably, I would say maybe like six to eight years ago uh, when I started to research and use it myself a little bit. Um, so just like anything, even the things I prescribe in a clinic, I don't give anything else to anybody that I don't do myself. So I start to look up a little more and check out the efficacy, the safety of it behind it, its clinical applications. But first of all, I tried it out in the gym um, and looked at a few different products. So um, there's a lot that goes into it. And, and I think it seems a little scary, but it's really not. Once you really jump into it and have some idea about what type of product you're using and how it can be implemented in the clinic, there's a lot of cool things you can do with it. And actually, there's a lot of benefit from it as well. Yeah, I'll tell you when I, the first time I'd really heard much about it was when you spoke in Savannah not long ago. And I'll tell you that I don't know what what band it was. It felt like a five pound band, but man, I couldn't get through the set. <laughs> That's it, right. It was it was yeah. a lot harder than it seemed. It was just like one side kept going and then right. my other arm with the cuff on. It was just like I couldn't do anything with it. And I'll tell right. I, I don't think we talked about it, but for a few days after I really did feel a difference in that arm. It was kind of yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, so the, so yeah, that's the interesting, point. the interesting part about it, it really is, is if you take a look at it, what, it, what the premise is behind it and the science behind it is that, again, knowing what you have, um, you always have to know what product to use because each product might be a little bit different. So I'll, I, I teach blood flow restriction from the be strong end of things. Um, and again, there's lots of good products out there. Rock cuffs are great. Uh, there's smart tools, Delphi units, and it all depends upon what you want to use. So what you first thing I first say is that you really should really take a look at the product you're going to utilize in your clinic first. So I did a little bit of research, uh, actually quite a bit over the years of stacks of it. Um, and looking at and actually uh, have been trained by Dr. Strim, uh, Jim Stray Gunderson. And so he was one of the first Katsu masters in the United States. I think it was like 2014 or something like that. Um, when he, uh, I, I think that's, I think that's the time frame. but anyways, one of the first Katsu masters and really Katsu means just added pressure. Uh, so they use these Katsu units and they take a certain amount of pressure, um, within a bladder around a band or cuff in the arm. And what that does is it collapses the superficial venous structure because those superficial veins are much easily more collapsible than the, than the deep uh, arterial structures. So what happens in that at that point then? And so there's two locations where these bands or cuffs will we'll go. And there is a difference between a band and a cuff. And we can talk about that a little later on if you want to. Um, but whether you use a band or a cuff, it's usually one is in the upper arm, just below the deltoid, right around the deltoid tuberosity in the axillary region. And then in the inguinal region, just along the upper part of the uh, groin area, or right around the upper part of the leg. And so in that particular region there, what it does is by collapsing the superficial venous structures, it creates a metabolic um, a disturbance or a disturbance of homeostasis. And what that is, is so when, you know, it, it's a balance between the rate of oxygen consum consumption of muscles of the working tissue and the resupply of oxygen that it needs. And what happens is it decreases the amount of oxygen by restricting that venous outflow. So you get a pooling of deoxygenated blood distal to the band or cuff. So what that does in turn now, it starts a whole cascade of things. It starts, uh, you get a decrease in the pH, you get an acidic environment, uh, you begin to get the built up of lactic acid and all the metabolites from that working muscle tissue, okay? It can't clear that stuff out. So what happens is you get a muscle pump and now that deoxygenated blood, high in metabolites gets pushed out underneath the band 
and then oxygenated blood comes back in. So you need that muscle pump. So you're not truly, truly occluding the arterial inflow when it comes, when we look at this one particular product that I use, and that's the B Strong. And so what happens there at that point is that it shuts down those type one oxygen dependent fibers, right? So we know although from our, you know, our kinesiology or anatomy, those type one oxygen dependent fibers are the ones that usually recruit it first. Um, in most of our patients, you know, uh, um, they have a hard time making those strength gains in a clinic. So once the oxygen dependent fibers are kind of shut down, it begins to integrate or kick in and pull in those type two fibers, those ones that are more anaerobic, those ones that you have to get under heavy loads. And then those are the ones that usually we don't have the opportunity to get into the clinic, right? Because most of our patients can't perform a heavy 75 to 80% of a one load, one repetition maximum, right? So they're either a post-surgical patient, or maybe they've got some, you know, uh, other musculoskeletal issues or something like that where they can't get it. But now what happens is it creates that metabolic crisis and pulls those, fatigues out those type ones and drags those type twos into the exercise and the muscle activation, which helps to stimulate hypertrophy. So we get that hypertrophy at a much faster rate. But the really cool thing is about this is that distal to the band, we get this local effect, right? But what's super cool is that it's almost like a, a hack, a biohack. So now we get, because the body's calling for more recruitment, it starts to release things at a higher level, growth hormone from the anterior pituitary. We start to get, um, we start to up, upregulate protein synthesis. And then we also start to get um, a downregulation, a myostatin that is usually a hormone that's used that we have that actually inhibits muscle growth. So not only do we get this local effect, but we get a systemic release at the same time um, because the body begins to connect that central nervous system effects to the distal local um, uh, um, effects that they're getting below the band. That's awesome. It makes me want to go put cuffs on right now on all four extremities. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. So, uh, you know, in my life, experience whenever I uh, have ever heard the term um, blood flow restriction it's almost always synonymous with the term of hypertrophy so you think about muscle but with all the cellular activity that you mentioned uh, I know the research you say it's and it's uh, this is kind of in, in its infancy in the west but do you see um, that this could be used for other things like tendinopathies or other things besides just muscle so you know in the clinic we see all kind of things but is, you know, some of our patients are like, man, I don't want to get big. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. So what should the clinician be thinking about blood flow restriction and how it can treat an everyday something of the upper extremity say? Yeah, Phil, those are great questions. And absolutely, there's there's a ton of uh, um, uh, extra, you know, just like anything else, you're not going to get jacked in like three sections, uh, sessions. <laughs> if, if, if that was the case, I would I would have had it on a long time ago, man. So I do use it. I use it in the uh, um, at different phases of my training in the gym. But I use it with my patients as well. And also there's some new research coming out, taking a look at the with tendinopathies, uh, Achilles issues as well, Achilles tendinopathies and growth of, of the tendon. Also taking a look at an increase in VO2 max through angiogenesis. So we get an increase in, in, in um, IGF. So insulin derived growth factors and vascular endothelial growth factors as well. So they've actually shown that those, um, they're actually, especially in athletes and also in just the general population, our age-related sarcopenia patients, those general weakness patients, we've seen a change in their stroke volumes. So those are some nice, well-documented research you know, that's out there that shows that there's, there's multiple areas or multiple areas of use for this. Um, so for example, I'll just say, put this out there with some of my lateral epicondylitis patients, most of them are the osis patients, so those chronic breakdown, you know, those types of things. What I'm doing is I'm using that. I'll put it on the upper arm. I'll have them go through, maybe I'll do my manual work and stuff like that first. Then I get ready to do whether I'm in my, you know, my eccentric phase or my concentric phase or my isotonic phase or isotonic phase of exercise. While they're doing their exercises, I'll put the BFR bands on them at that time. And so what I'll do about 15 minutes, 20 minutes at the most, do um, while they're doing that exercise at a higher repetition, lower load. So what I'm going to do is help to get not only just those local effects, but systemic effects as well at the same time. Um, we've seen, again, some nice, some nice healing factors. Uh, now, there hasn't been a lot of studies that are out there on its effects of tendinopathies at this point, but there, are, there is more research coming out. And it, it's, it, it's in its um, 
biology or in its uh, effects on the cellular level, it's primed for, for just waiting for some good studies to come out like that. Well, Bob, so, Bob and I talk on, on every single one of these sessions. We, we, there's some topic that we say that the evidence doesn't, doesn't always match. Sometimes it's the same or similar. Sometimes it's almost contraindicated to what we see uh, clinically. And so even though there's not enough research, you've been doing this six to eight years, you say, you, have yeah. you, you've seen enough kind of systemic or um, uh, cellular changes to where you would say, hey, I wasn't seeing it without BFR, but I am seeing it with, I mean. So one of the, so that's a great, a great segue into this. So and I'll give, give you a case study here that I used before and the first time I used it, and I've used, I used multiple um, uh, trial, different, multiple different brands on the one, a particular patient to see which one I felt was the best which one I liked again, and I'm not here to tell you which one to use. You have to pick out whatever one you use, whatever one your clinic is and understand the process about, um, about that piece of equipment and how it works. Can the piece of equipment occlude? Can it not occlude? Is, is it, you know, what's the efficacy and safety behind it? But let me just say this here before we get into those things there, as far as, so we take a look at, we know that our, most of our post-op patients can't get heavy loads, right? We can't do high loads. Let's say we take a biceps tendon repair and I'll use this as one of my case studies. So we had a biceps tendon repair at an endo button. Um, and so this is an untrained individual. So the doc wanted me to keep it really low, low, um, low load, um, uh, you know, uh, just nice and easy, uh, maybe just a couple pounds here and there for some general strengthening over time. So what I did is I wanted that, that healing effect, that systemic effect, along with the local effect at the same time. So I used a B strong band in the upper arm. So you measure your circumference of the limb. Maybe it's an upper arm, forearm, or whatever, maybe get a grip strength. And so we'll measure that circumference when we first start. And I did about nine to 12 treatment sessions with this fella. Um, and so again, now what, what, what happens, the exercise regime goes like this. We use very, very low loads. So maybe like 20 to 30% of the one rep maximum or whatever we think that person can get for one particular heavy pull. So now we know we can't exercise that load because of the, whether it be the surgery or whether it be any precaution that you might have or whatever they have. So now they're exercising a very low load, but their, but their repetition scheme is very high. So like Bob, and we did it before we, we did like a very light, maybe a couple pound, you know, um, TheraBand, CLX band. And so we do 30 repetitions and what that does, it primes the tissue, gets that, it's, it creates that metabolic change. So we get that deoxygenated blood to pool in there. And then we give a 30 second rest period. Then we shoot for another 20 repetitions, 30 second rest period maybe 15 repetitions, maybe 20. It depends upon what you want to do. And we do that about three to four sets. Okay. And then we give a rest minute in between there to allow that tissue to relax. And then, so what we do is you feel that pump that you would normally feel under heavy loads at a very, very early rate. And that fatigue factor, that fatigue signal that is so important to this, you get very early on. So I'm constantly talking to my patients saying, um, I have uh, this thing I call Jim's four P's pain, no pain, no paresthesias. You need a good pulse and you need good performance. So you can't have any tingling or numbness, no pain with the exercise. You've got to have a good radial pulse and you've got to have excellent performance. You've got to be able to complete all your exercises without, without um, having any poor form. So we do that for about 15, 20 minutes. That's the length of the session. Most of the time, right around 15, 20 minute mark. We stop that. Um, and then we'll move on from there. Then you can measure the circumference of the limb, and I and, and this fellow with the um, uh, with the uh, um, biceps tendon repair, uh, we gained um, I think probably like oh if I remember off the top of my head three centimeters or so in circumference around the biceps itself by the time we got done with our um, with our training sessions, so from the, from beginning to end, and so he and then his grip strength and we didn't even touch grip very much at all. His grip strength went up by about twenty to thirty pounds. Nothing so again. That. Yeah, you, we can really get some really cool stuff that's there. And again, not just because you get the local effect, but also that systemic effect that's drawing from that central nervous system. Yeah, that's great stuff. And I know that, you know, you talk about the B-Strong bands, and one of the things you were mentioning, is there a pulse? I know you, I think, I can't remember the brand, so you may have to correct me. I think it was the, and it may be the wrong name, the, the Katsu brand that you need to, that you need to really be careful with because you can actually occlude everything and that could cause trouble down the road. So, you know, if you're a beginner in this field and you're trying to find something that's um, not necessarily foolproof, but close, is the B-Strong Band something you'd recommend? So, so yeah, and I think this is a great segue into here. It's really up to the clinician to figure out what brand that they want to use, most importantly. 
but one of the whenever they whatever brand they pick, they need to make sure they follow the manufacturer's guidelines and follow the training. For example, and this is a great segue where there is a difference between a cuff and a band. So, and they've shown in the literature that a wide inelastic cuff, let's say a blood pressure cuff, is going to occlude an arterial inflow at a much lower rate than let's say a two-inch non-elastic band or uh, something that has a safety valve that's uh, uh, built into it so you can't completely occlude. So we know a blood pressure cuff. We go get our blood pressure cuff taken to get all the time. You know, So right around 150 millimeters of mercury, we can shut down arterial inflow. Why? Because it's a wide inelastic band. We shut that down. We don't have a pulse. We get our systolic and diastolic. So then we open that baby up a little bit. We get our systolic and we get our, we get our uh, blood flow, heart rate, whatever we're going to be getting. Some cuffs wider and then you have to know something for example like maybe there's a delphi unit or smart tools or whatever you're going to use those can really uh, truly occlude so that's why you have to know what they call aop or lop that's your limb occlusion pressure or your arterial occlusion pressure so how you would find that is say let's say you know you occlude at maybe uh, 200 millimeters of mercury so you want 80 percent of that so that's where you'd kind of work at within that so 80 percent of your occlusion pressure so that's those are the things you have to know because we don't want to occlude an arterial inflow. So then what you that, then what those will do is that you'll work within that again that certain percentage of that limb occlusion pressure. However, the literature is all over now. They're showing that even between twenty to sixty percent of your one rep max, you can get the same effect as a higher occlusion pressure. With the B strong and things like rock cuffs, when applied correctly, you can go all the way up to five hundred millimeters of mercury. And I've done that on myself. I've done it on other people. And I still can't occlude the arterial inflow. So one of the things that drew me to the product that I use, and again, it's up to you to pick which one you want to, the one I use is the safety of it. Um, so uh, we see, and you can look on the market, you can, Bob, Phil, Bob, you can go on a, um, you know, Google right now, pipe in, you know, blood flow restriction training and pull up someone who's got a, a, a band or something like that. And they just wrap around and pull it tight. So there's really not, there's just some really unsafe products that are out there, but there's a lot of genius behind these two products. Again, the B-Strong and the Rock Cuffs, a lot of time, a lot of um, work has gone into them to make sure that they're very safe at the same time. So, um, Jim, is there a, uh, so all, all, all so good information so far, but is there a, a certain population that you like to use this with? I and mean, a lot of the, the literature I read is all about uh, the trained you know, uh, like an athletic type individual. Um, but uh, it also suggests it can be used with all kinds of the older population, just for general deconditioning. But uh, is there a certain population that you found is most beneficial uh, to this? And do you find better results in certain body types even? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've used it from my high school athletes. I love overhead athletes. Um, I've used it from them um, all the way up to um, some of my elderly folks, as long as they're safe to exercise. So that's one of the most important things, you know, um, things that you need to know any contraindications, which might be like lymphedema, um, sickle cell anemia, because we don't want to starve the, the muscles of any more blood flow, um, DVTs, um, untreated hypertension, those types of things. Um, we really want to make sure that any, any peripheral vascular disease, um, you know, infections, those types of anything you might be cautious about that you feel that uh, might not be appropriate, you know, then you want to be careful of that population. But if they're safe to exercise, they're safe by their doctor or by their, they should be able to use um, blood flow restriction training really pretty much at any age. And we've seen a lot of actually uh, some nice ink spins built on age related sarcopenia. And even those that are bedridden, there are a lot of that. A lot of uh, us um, studies have come in. They used it in you know people who are bedridden and those types of things as well. And actually, there's some good literature coming out on the elderly population where they use it intermittently throughout the day during the ADLs, and just kind of put it on for a period of time, take it off, put it on, take it off, put it on, take it off for mitigation of that age-related sarcopenia. So there's some really really cool stuff with it. Um, have I used? It? I use it with my rotator cuff repairs. And so that leads to another neat conversation is that you say, well, jeepers, you know, you're using a rotator cuff that's at the shoulder level, you know, the bands down around is the upper part of the arm. How is that going to impact? Again, uh, one of the cool things about it is that you get the local effect and the systemic effect. So again, you get that release of growth hormone from that shutting down of those type one fibers and you get that recruitment early or early on that you wouldn't normally get. 
So you'll see in, in Bob's experience that you get that fatigue signal, that moderate fatigue signal at a much faster rate. So you begin to recruit other muscles and that body, your body calls for more, more, uh, more recruitment. And so as we get that, it, we can do that and engage, engage multiple systems. So there's actually a good study. Um, I don't have uh, the, I can't cite it off the top of my head right here. I've got it in the other room. Um, probably too much Knob Creek. Um, but anyways, <laughs> uh, it's, they found that there's significant strength gains on the contralateral side. So, um, so even of the, you know, the, the untrained side. And so again, why is that begin to that central nervous system effect at the same time? Right. So even with my patients, let's say if I have a peripheral nerve injury and I don't want to maybe put a band on that and, uh, affected side, or maybe I've got an elderly uh, patient that I might want, I'm, I might do the opposite side or God forbid, Hey, OTs, we put it on the lower extremity, right? Um, everything's <laughs> right connected. Out of town. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just ran out of town. Yeah. So we can, we can put it on it. I mean, I teach all, all, all areas to do it. There's nothing wrong with that. So, and again, and I teach, you know, we're, we work on sit to stand up out of a chair. We're going to work. I work total body conditioning with my patients. So again, these things here um, have had some super nice effects when it comes to um, allowing people to get those strength gains early on without risk of putting the soft tissue at damage or causing any joint destruction um, or early times. And, and it had some really, really nice opportunities. So. I know I've, I read an article and I can't necessarily cite it. I'll try to get it, but they were talking about bench press using that. And that was the thing about it is, is proximal. So why does it happen? And I think you answered that question. And one, I wanted to go back to, you were talking about for basic ADLs. Are you still using it for the 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes? in increment yeah. sessions with that patient so yeah, they're not necessarily so, lifting but they're doing we're still occluding or semi-occluding or occluding venous flow but not arterial flow right so again yes absolutely so i have some people integrate with functional activities as well so very much like that in the clinic so um again and this can be utilized as maybe a neuromuscular re-education this a lot of times we put this i put this right into my therapeutic exercise so or if i'm doing a therapeutic activity I'll document in the, in the, um, uh, my, in my note, like, Hey, I'm using B strong BFR. And I always mark down what type I'm using. Why? Because if I'm using Delphi, if I'm using smart tools, or if I'm using rock cuffs, each one of those is a different system. And each one has their own little idiosyncrasies. So you've got to make sure, you know, does your, does your product occlude or not occlude? So I'll put that in there first that way. And I'll set my, and then I'll set my, maybe I'm using 150, 150 millimeters of mercury. Uh, maybe I'm using, um, you know, uh, what I'm doing, you know, I have to adjust that from time out uh, throughout the session. And then I'll have them go through the activity. Maybe I'm going to have them stack some towels and pull them in out of a covered in a PNF pattern, what I'm going to do. And then I'll, I'll ask them throughout the session, what's your fatigue like? Mild, moderate, severe. So mild fatigue is, hey, I can get through all my repetitions or get my through my, my whole activity with, with no or little effort. You know, um, a moderate is going to be, I can get through all my, acti my exercises with, you know, I've got some, a little bit of a fatigue. Uh, it's starting to get really difficult, but my activity is really, I, I still have a solid performance and stuff like that. And so I feel like, yeah, you know, I feel like I'm really tired, but I'm, I'm doing really well. Severe, severe fatigue is going to be where I can't get to my full, full exercise. I can't complete my repetitions and I have poor performance. You want to be in about that moderate fatigue factor early on. So what you're going to do is you're going to ask your patient, you're going to be with them the whole time. You don't let them hook them up and take them, send them off and do this by themselves. So you're with them and you're asking them what's your pulse or you feel their pulse, maybe a radial pulse, have any tingling or numbness. And some of my patients and you, for you exercisers, you felt that pump you have beforehand, you know, you really see that vascular distension that happens distal to that band. And so they'll feel like, oh, like, oh my goodness, I got this pump just the other day when my rotator guff, uh, cuff fellas. It's like, my gosh, this feels really good. It feels really, it feels heavy. And so I'll monitor that. And then I'll let that, you know, uh, when they get done, you'll feel this rush back into the extremity. And then we'll follow up with maybe a therapeutic exercise, a therapeutic activity. But the general rule of thumb, the general um, is about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, in the gym, I've had it on up to 40 minutes. Uh, I let the band down a little bit sometimes and then put it back up. I've used it for finishers, you know, in the gym where I want to fatigue something out really quick, maybe do a heavy squat and then use it on, you know, my legs for a finisher, maybe doing a um, Saxon squat or something, whatever, goblet squat or something like that. So, um, right. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, applications. It doesn't have to be just for doing bicep and tricep curls. There's all kinds of cool stuff you can do. Well, I can definitely say it made me feel very inadequate 
when we did it in Savannah. It was, I know that, I know that but you took a look at it and you said, let's use the lighter band. And you mentioned, you know, let's try to go for 30 and then 15 and then, you know, or 20 and then 15. And I couldn't even make it all the way through. It was, it was insane, but it was really yeah. cool to just kind of feel that. Yeah. So, and I use it, I use that little trick a lot of times when there's a lot of, you know, there's always a, like a naysayer or something like that. And again, I, I love BFR. I think it's great. I've used it myself. I felt it myself. Uh, it's been very safe, been used it for years. Um, you've mul- mul- I've tried it multiple products. Um, and really what's neat, we tried that. I, I was uh, uh, teaching a course um, in Fort Bragg and this, this big military dude came up. He's like, ah, you know, I can do that. No problem. So, so I gave him two 20 pound dumbbells and I did the same thing with him, hooked him up. And uh, Bob, I think he petered out way before you did. I think by the time he got there, he, he really couldn't even get, even get that. But what it does <laughs> again, it, and I, and I jacked up the, I jacked up the millimeters of mercury in that one particular band to, to, to show that. So there's various uh, um, settings that you can start with. The smaller the limb, the, the maybe you might use a green band from the B-Strong system. And then the lower the, the millimeters of mercury is going to be because the, the less it's going to take to compress. So again, we want that moderate fatigue factor. The bigger extremity, you use the larger band and maybe a little bit more um, uh, millimeters of mercury within that band it's going to take to compress. Again, Knowing your product and those little idiosyncrasies and stuff about the product and what it does is, is your key to safety as well. Um, but really, again, what we're looking for is that moderate fatigue signal where we're going to be able to do that 20 to 30 percent of your one rep max with that lightweight in order to get those same effects of the heavy loads that we'd normally do without any tissue damage or joint damage. Right. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit. Uh, you mentioned something earlier and kind of Bob did, too, but, you know, the fatigue factor. So um, I put a band on as on one of the little talks we did. And really, I mean, something that you could easily do 20 reps. Now, all of a sudden at 10, you're saying, holy moly, or by 14, you know, um, whatever that, that number is. But so is there, and, and you mentioned your, your, um, your distal biceps tendon. So is there any transfer of tendon load to this? Even though you feel fatigued, if somebody's doing something, maybe subacute post-op, or maybe you went to phaser, wherever you are, you decide to do it. Even though the patient is feeling fatigued, do you have to worry that there's an increased tendon load that would maybe scare somebody from doing it? I got gotcha. you. So maybe you play, you're maybe using a maybe with a flexor tendon repair or something like that, or um, you know post. And I have used it with um, some of my tendon repairs um, later on when they're ready to go through the active resistance phase. Okay. So again, um, we're, the premise is still the same. If I'm concerned, like you say, we'll say with that distal bicep tendon fellow that I'm, my load might be too much. That's the perfect fellow to use it with. So they're even using it within two to three days of your post-op ACL patients and stuff like that as well. So that there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about those. So again, I might even start with an isometric contraction. Sorry, right. And build my way up first. So I'll maybe load isometrically. Then maybe I'll move concentrically. Then I'll maybe I'll move eccentrically down the road. I'm still following my general guidelines. But when the doc says, hey, my patient's ready to start resistance, Okay. We have some very conservative shoulder surgeons in our area and they, they, people do really well, but they take, they're really conservative with their, with their uh, management. So um, what I might do is to help supplement early on and mitigate any kind of disuse atrophy is I might use a band during the active range of motion phase in order to still get that muscle pump and still activate those motor units and mitigate that short, that, 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 uh, that um, immobile due to immobilization. You know, we can lose what they say for what 30% within a couple of weeks of muscle um, over uh, just immobilization. We even see within two to three days of immobilization changes on the homunculus, right? We start to get smudging, especially in those chronic pain patients and stuff like that. They've had a lot of, maybe they're not moving something very well. So this kind of gives them another option to kind of help move and function with. And that's what I love about the B-Strong product, again, is because they can not just use it in the gym, but they can swim with it, walk with it, hike with it. Uh, when I was trained at, uh, out west in, in uh, Park City, Utah, um, the Olympic ski team and those guys out there were using it on the slopes. Um, so there's a lot of functional activities. They were running with it, those types of things as well. The, when it comes down to the load, it's still the premise is the same. Low load, higher repetition, and keep it within that framework. So usually it's about three to four exercises, higher repetitions. You get that fatigue factor first. And it, the, usually in the literature, it talks about this 30 repetition, 15 repetition, 15, like, you know, three sets of 15 after that. 30 seconds rest of each set, one minute in between each exercise. Really what that 30 repetition number is for is it really kind of gets you fatigued out first, then you drop down to lower repetitions. 
But when you get to that first set, if you want to do three sets of 20, you can do that. If you, you get down to maybe four sets of 10, you can do that. It's okay, right? We're still getting that low load, higher repetition, and still getting the same effect both locally and centrally. That's great. And so, again, it, is, it for, is it for every patient? No, sure. No, not every patient. It's a total, yeah. You know, I don't use it with every patient of mine. I use it with um, those that I feel are most appropriate. Have I used it with some non-traditional patients? You might think, yeah, I've used it with some of my tennis elbow patients. Because I think that there is, again, we've seen some literature that shows increase in angiogenesis. Mm -hmm. We've seen um, an increase in uh, bone mineral density. Uh, we've seen an uh, increase in VO2 max with this. This isn't my opinion. This is some nice hard research. We've seen an increase in muscle mass. So any one of those particular patients that may fit into that, which are quite a few, I might go ahead and use that in my, my treatment plan. So um, based on, again, the contraindications and what I'm trying to do with them. Nice. So if, if someone is wanting to take this information and kind of implement BFR in their clinic, how would you recommend they get started? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'd recommend doing a little research first. Okay. We all do. Um, you know, if, if you want to, don't hesitate to share my email address or something like that. There's, I have a ton of stack of studies you can get. Um, all you have to do is a simple uh, Google scholar search, type in blood flow restriction training. Um, you could type in BFR, you could type in, all, in a, a plethora, believe me, more, more stuff that you'll, that you'll want to read will come up for you. Everything from you know, it's effects on, you know, cardiovascular structures, the presser reflex, all kinds of different cardiovascular issues to like um, mitigating, uh, um, you know, sarcopenia, muscle atrophy, those types of things on the young and the old. There's a lot of stuff that's out there. Do a little understanding first to, to kind of get an idea about the physiology behind it, um, what it does and how it interacts with your patient and how it can uh, work in your clinic. And I'm not saying it can be it can be done also in a geriatric population for sure, maybe in long term care or wherever at short term rehab. It's not just in the outpatient hand therapy world or with just with athletes. The next thing I would say to do is do some looking out at various products that are out there. There's a lot of great products that are out there. Okay. Um, again, and I've done that just that. I mean, and, and I, I tell you, it's up to you as a clinician. I never tell somebody what they have to buy. I know what I love and what I like to use. It doesn't mean someone else doesn't have some good results with another product. You just have to know what your product does and the efficacy and the safety behind it. If it's a wider inelastic cuff, that's going to have a higher propensity to occlude. You need to know how to use that and maybe know how, maybe that's why you'll use a Doppler. Maybe that's why you'll use um, Delphi has a, um, a blood flow or, or a, um, a blood pressure cuff reading system on it that changes throughout the exercise and modifies that. Um, knowing, you know, what I know with be strong and rock cuffs, uh, we go by observation, uh, and they also have safety factors built into them, so you can't truly occlude. So again, knowing that, um, look out for some good information that's out there. And really, I'll tell you the truth, a lot of stuff is, is clinician-driven. So this is exciting by clinicians. So you'll find clinicians that, you know, use these products, check it out. Um, um, there's some great stuff out there, some great reviews. Uh, Kevin Wilkes got some great reviews on this stuff here. Mike Reinold and those guys, uh, Champion Sports and PTF, some great reviews on it as well. Um, there's some good literature that's out there on performance health websites, um, International Journal of Sports, uh, Physical Therapy's got some great stuff uh, about blood flow restriction training, uh, Journal of Strength and Conditioning, some good stuff there. So I would kind of start there um, and then ask around, um, ask around from other clinicians that have been there and have used it and uh, how it might fit into your practice. So, And never be afraid to try it. Um, the, the one you've talked about, Be Strong. Um, they say you go with that one or you go with another one. It doesn't really matter. Um, if, if someone is going to want to try to take this to their supervisor and say, hey, I'd like to try this. What, what, what would somebody expect for their cost, their startup cost to be? And, mm -hmm. if, hey, I want to use this for a, an upper extremity and a lower extremity. Does that mean that you have to get a different system? Or does one of these systems you speak of uh, come with different size cuffs to accommodate a 350-pound leg? Uh, and right. Like, arm. So, well, so you, you want to get started. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah. So that's a great question. Again, what we first and foremost is, you know, one of the things is we want to make sure we get paid for what we do. Right. So we want outcomes. And so the faster our patient gets better, um, we want to stay research based. We want to stay evidence based as much as possible. 
Um, there's a lot of products out there. And where, again, you go, you type in right now, Google search on Amazon, you're going to go BFR, you'll get uh, booty bands. So if you want to go grab booty bands and cut the, you know, your <laughs> circulation off to your leg, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's your choice. Um, you know, you can get those for $25 online and you can go buy, you know, a Delphi unit for $6,000 or three or $4,000. So they run anywhere from, you know, under a couple hundred dollars. So I know that the Rock Cuffs uh, has a really good price point on there. Be Strong has a really good price point on there. They're very, very safe, very effective. Um, again, I've used them myself, not just in the clinic, but personally. I've got a couple sets out in my gym that I use. And I'll tell you what, the pump you feel on it, the fatigue factor is, is really good. So I would, again, to approach your, your, you know, your department head or whatever and say, listen, there's just the evidence behind this. I can help my patients get better faster. Um, I can get uh, get them on the road to recovery quicker. I can mitigate, you know, this this uh, disuse atrophy, get some strength going here, and kind of stay abreast of left, and maybe even be able to market this as well. So you can get some good stuff for under five hundred dollars. Some really good products for under that. Again, it depends upon the product itself. Um, and they have, for example, I use Be Strong again. Uh, they have these uh, green ones, and I've used them on my my kids themselves. I've used it on my fifteen year old. Um, I've used it on my own family members. Um, so you start, you know, you can start with a small limb, maybe use a green band and you go up with like a, a, a blue, I think it's a gray maybe in there. And those are for like the NFL linebacker quad, you know, it's like 64 inch around tree trunks or something like that. So, and anywhere between they come in different sets. So then you can use in our clinic, we use mostly the red and, um, green bands. And those are our upper extremity bands for in our clinic. Um, and again, I've used um, with my high school athletes, uh, we have a young uh, girl who had a posterior um, capsule, capsule repair, like a posterior bank cart, and she did phenomenal. Um, we were hammering her once she was ready to do her strength and conditioning phase. Um, we just we just went right through the, the, the program, whether she did great with it. So that was a very small um, uh, band. Um, again, and know that again, um, there's a difference between that band and the cuff. So what is it? You need to find that out with your product. So uh, there's lots of different ways to get into it. Kind of like Philip said earlier, you know, there's, there's research behind a lot of things. And a lot of people say, show me the research, show me this, but you, I'll argue, you can't, you can't argue with the results. You know, so no, you can't get, you can't great. get around this, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. You're right with this. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know, every, there's a lot of things that are kind of, and, and again, we talked about, you said it before on our shows, and I, I 100% agree, just because there's not a good research study out there for it doesn't mean that you're going to poo-poo that treatment. I mean, you could use like a kinesiology taping, like a cupping or anything like that at all. You know, th those are some people, some of our people love it. And if it helps them get better, then you're darn straight. I'm going to, you know, my kid's got to go to PT school. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take <laughs> the patient if I can. So if that makes them feel better and they get, they get better from it, it's not contraindicated, I'm going to use it. But there's been so much literature, so much ink spilled about blood flow restriction training. Um, you're gonna, you're just going to go dizzy and probably get befuddled, you know, reading all the research and stuff for it. So I know there are some precautions, and I'm not saying that this is the end all to be all. Just like yeah. anything, I don't care if it's an ultrasound, I don't care if it's a muscle stem, I don't care if it's instrument assisted soft tissue mobility. You've got to do a little homework. You've got there are contraindications for it. You've got to know what product you're going to use, but it's a great addition to your toolbox. So, yeah. and if you can, you know, if you can get a good workout in that you're over your lunch hour too, Hey, that's even better. As far as, um, billing goes, what, what would you recommend billing? So again, I add this, this is something that we, it's not, a, there's not a particular billing code for it. Um, but I will use this with, uh, for example, if I'm doing, um, you know, early on, let's say in my shoulder rehab and I'm doing more, uh, proprioceptive, um, you know, dynamic stability stuff. Maybe I'm going to use a neuromuscular re-education with it. Okay. Or maybe I'm using therapeutic exercise. Maybe I'm going right into my, you know, I've got a, you know, I don't know, a distal radius fracture that I've used. I've used it with people with distal radius fractures as well. Um, that, uh, help. And I'll use this for an example. Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to jump off here for a second. One of our uh, orthopedic surgeons um, fractured uh, his ankle. And so he had heard about um, the BFR and he came up to me. He's like, Hey, what's this BFR stuff I've been hearing about? So I gave him some information on it, make a long story short, he bought himself some sets of these things and he was back faster than he thought he was before into the OR again. Now, again, um, there's actually seen some, uh, again, uh, um, some increase in the bones are impacted as well. When you're getting an increase in ALP, alkaline phosphate, um, again, it's an enzyme that increases um, when your bones are growing or active, helps with osteo osteoclast, osteoblast uh, proliferation. 
So, um, you know, when you see that, I'll, I'll add this to my therapeutic exercise um, after things like my fracture management. Um, uh, and then I'll use it for therapeutic activity. If I'm going to be doing an AD, I don't say ADL in the fact, because I don't get people into the shower and stuff in the outpatient clinic. Um, if I get in there that maybe I'll do some um, ADL activities, maybe reaching in out of cupboards or uh, doing different PNF patterns, or maybe even doing um, various box lifts or work conditioning and stuff like that with my patients, I'll put that on too as well. So. Nice. Um, yeah, so let's say this, for those, for those critics of uh, blood flow restriction, uh, what advice or, or what would you say? I mean, cl obviously clinical results speak, um, and I'm going to make this a two-part question because I think we're, we're just about gotten everything. Um, but one was, what would you say to the critics? And then two, um, you said, don't be, a, don't be afraid to try this. So for the clinician, young or old, wanting to try it, um, yeah. uh, just an overall advice there. Yeah. So I'd say, again, there, there are just like anything. I mean, Jeepers, I was a critic. I'm a critic of a lot of things. It's so funny. My, my wife always cracks me up. She's an OT as well. Remember years back when, uh, you know, she was using kinesiology taping with her kids. I'm like, that's a bunch of bunk. You know, who's going to put some tape on somebody kid or something like that. And, and, and then here we are. Uh, I took about every kinesiology taping course in, in the book. And they had like 12 kinesiology taping courses under my belt. And now I'm using it with quite a few people. She's like, I thought that was a bunch of hogwash. You know, so because she throws it in your face. <laughs> But um, so, you know, I'm a naysayer with a lot of different things, um, but I always, I don't, I don't, I don't, I question it, but I don't throw it out. Give it a shot. You have to yeah. try it first. So, you know, um, I've got friends that are, will say, oh, I never use a modality. I never use ultrasound. It's awful. And there's no evidence that shows it works. Well, that's not entirely true. Uh, it doesn't work for everything. So if you're using it with everything, then you're going to get subpar results. But if you use it clinically at the right time, at the right place, in the right person for the right patient, then it may be effective. So the idea behind that is to, we need to start, I think over the 27 years I've been practicing, I just put this, this little slide in my, some of my presentations. I'll be doing one on the elbow um, later on this month. And you know, when you first start out, you think you know everything. And then all of a sudden, later on in your practice, you get down to this little bump where you feel you don't know anything anymore. So okay. and you begin to start to implement that stuff. And you've got to have a little humility with this stuff and say, you know something, boy, things really, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that I might have been able to use or didn't really learn in the first place very well. I'm going to implement in my practice. So I want to, I love what I do and I don't want to get bored in what I do. And if you're bored, it's your own fault. So, um, you know, you've got to get out there and say, I'm going to, I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to try this and see if it works. And if it, if you've tried it, if you pick the meat from the bones and it don't work, throw it out. But if it does work and you might have it for the right patient. And if someone comes to your door and says, Hey, the facility down the road, and believe me, I'm not up to doing every shiny little thing that, you know, jingles, I don't grab a hold of it and jump onto it. I try it out first. But hey, if the, the, the facility down the road is doing it, how come you aren't, do, aren't doing it? Ah, it doesn't work. Well, they're going to go someplace else. So, um, and I, you know, and that's just one thought process. So again, I, I have no problem with trying something out first and saying, if you don't like it, don't use it. It's up to you. Um, but if you think you might find something interesting in it, give it a shot. And, yeah. and then same, same thing for the advice for the, you know, new ones starting it out. I would say the same thing. You know, it's, um, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? So if we don't give that a shot, Got like I never thought I'd like bourbon. Now look at I can't stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, thank you for that. Um, so now we have a little great, section called that we entitled the five o'clock walkover. So Jim, we're going to ask you a series of questions. I just want you to give us your best answer. Um, so the first one is, what is the oddest condiment food combination you use? I'll go first. Actually, mine. I like to put cane syrup over black-eyed peas and rice. Um, wow. It just gives a little sweetness to it. It's something I learned when I was little, but that's probably the oddest condiment food combination I use. How about you? Oddest condiment food. Um, I like to put maple syrup on breakfast cereal. Is that bad? It's kind of like a little elf thing there. You know, I don't know. I'm a sugar holic, so. <laughs> My wife would love that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say probably something like that. Uh, you know, um, I would have to, my daughter's probably like me. She puts ketchup on everything. So, uh, yeah. you know, whatever. I would say that's the thing I can think of first, most. All right, Philip. Oh, is, is syrup considered a condiment, though? I'll take it. I'll take it. Mine's cane syrup, so I'll take it. Right? Yeah, no, I think uh, 
mine would probably be uh, ketchup, um, hot sauce, or like a salsa on eggs. Okay. That's very normal, I guess, out in the Southwest. And, uh, but uh, that's something we've always done that's pretty good. Certain times, scrambled and fried eggs, love the ketchup on it, but uh, egg, not so much. I'll quote my old man. He says it all goes to the same place anyway. So, you know, that guy used to shove everything together. So very true. Very true. All right. What is, what is your go-to bourbon? Go-to bourbon. Okay. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've become, I'm not a bourbon snob by any means. Uh, I would say my go-to is probably Knob Creek. Uh, I like Knob Creek. I've tried Blanton's, um, uh, Angel's Envy. I've had that. Um, I've got everything from Jack Daniels, which that's probably my number two. So, I'm not like a, I'm not going to high end guy. You know what I mean? I'm pretty, I'm pretty cheap yeah. date. So I'd say between Knob Creek and, and, uh, um, Jack Daniels. Philip. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there, right there in that range. Uh, any of those are good. Um, in fact, my favorite go-to, I can't even really think of it right now, uh, because of the podcast, you know, <laughs> one of the best things to have with a, I found I've got, everyone's got to have a vice or two, but, I, I'm, I love puffing out a really good cigar too. I'm sitting around a campfire with a with a uh, nice glass of bourbon and a cigar, you know, you that's my Friday night. I like um, I like Basil Hayden. Um, that's pretty good and Buffalo Trace. But I, I agree, I'm not the most expensive guy, but I, I do like um, I do enjoy a good one that you can drink straight, not have to mix. So right, right. Good. Yeah, ba- right. Basil. Basil was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, Basil's really good. So, what's your favorite form of stress relief? I have a feeling I know this, but me, um, yeah, my favorite form of stress is the gym. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've, uh, I just turned fifty. Um, I did my first. I started working out at fourteen. I did my first uh, teenage bodybuilding competition at fifteen. I came in fourth place out of four people, so that was my claim to fame. <laughs> Crushing it! <laughs> and yeah. I've been, I've been in probably. I did my last powerlifting competition when my daughter was born so i was probably maybe around 28 or 29 or something like that. and i've been in probably probably about 30 some competitions over the years so if i've had a rough day or i just come in i'm a little pissy my wife looks at me she's like go out to the back garage gym i got a garage gym out there of equipment i've collected ever since i was a kid i just crush a good workout and i come out of there i feel like i've just had a weighted blanket on my soul so there you go philip nice. yeah yeah, mine would probably be uh, running or uh, going for a bike ride. I don't bike ride near as much as I used to because my kids are older and too many people text and I uh, like the road bike. Uh, so I don't do it as much as I used to, but they, we do have us uh, like around the local college where I can go ride or, or uh, get into a group in the morning or something. So uh, I, d- I do like to do that. And you don't realize how much of a stress reliever that is until you get done and say, man, I was just, uh, you know, two hours by yourself and just kind of getting, uh, taking a load off. That's right. right. I, mine is, I love to run after work. Um, it's just a great stress relief. You know, I mean, there's good stress and bad stress. So, I mean, it's just, it's just a great thing for me. And, um, before I go to the next question, I'd also like to say happy birthday, Jim. I know it was just the other day. So you mentioned it. I wasn't going to bring it up, but I will say happy birthday. You know, Um, I I was hoping to let it go by, but with social media, um, which I don't have Facebook, but social media, it gets out there. So I text Jim and told him happy birthday. He's like, who told you? I said, it's all over. It's all over Instagram. (laughs) I Googled Googled his name. That's the first thing that popped up, man. He said uh, (laughs) 5-0. So what is the oddest thing you were scared of? Oddest thing I'm scared of. Gosh. Um, my wife, I don't know if that counts. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I shouldn't say that, but she's odd. She's not odd, but I'm just scared of her. Um, I honestly, the, my, my biggest fear is heights. I'm heights. A, okay. a, I'm a, I, I don't like ladders. I don't like, like anything. I'm not a very coordinated man. Uh, I don't do anything with the football, baseball, anything like that at all. I just lift heavy things and I put them back down. <laughs> so um, I uh, I just don't like being up on a ladder, um, climbing a tree, nothing like that at all. If that's odd, I don't know. But uh, when I was a kid, I, my mom took me up to Humpty Dumpty Land up in the, uh, the Thousand Islands. And I remember her dragging me on this tower. It took me all the way up and I was screaming the whole time I was on there. It wasn't very enjoyable. So anyways, uh, not a heights guy. Philip. Uh, you know, it's funny with the profession that, that we're all in, but I do not like to th- see things go backwards. I can look at people bringing in their photos of their of their post injuries and their 
something been all different ways, I can look at it no problem. But to watch a video or to watch football, once I see the live injury occur, oh, yeah. I cannot watch the replay. I don't care how many times I try and I make a very horrible animated body reaction that my kids and my wife just think is ridiculous. But I, can't. <laughs> I know which way they're supposed to bend and I don't like to watch it. I understand that. Mine, it's really odd that uh, choking, not myself, but other people choking. <laughs> it, choking I, other it, people? No, like if they're eating, like, and they act like they're going to choke, it, it brings a lot of anxiety to me. I don't know why. Uh -huh. And it's not even about me. It's about them. So yeah. I don't know why, but it, it bothers me a whole lot. It's um, out of your control. It's out of your control. It is. It is. My dad used to say his is water. He was a lifeguard and could swim like a fish, but his is water oh, wow. for other people, not for yeah. him, for other people. And so I guess maybe that's kind of where it comes from. So crazy. the best advice you could give to a new grad hand therapist. Best advice to give a new grad. Um, work hard and be humble. If there's oh, one yeah. thing, you know, if there's one thing uh, I've learned over the, 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 again, and, and I, I, I'm not even an old timer when it comes to practice. I've seen people got 40 years experience and, and to not be afraid to, to, um, to, to say you have something to offer too, as well. I think we sell ourselves short an awful lot. Listen, I was voted like most likely to not succeed in my high school, man. It, it's like, now I'm, I'm traveling the country teaching. I'm talking to you guys. I mean, I never thought I'd be doing this stuff. Um, I'm, I'm going to be, at, I was at Georgia Hand, you know, special interest group last year. I'll be going out to Wisconsin. I teach at two schools, I'm the team leader, leader of a hand center. Um, I look at this stuff and say, if you don't try something, you don't work hard for something, you won't ever get anywhere. So I think being humble enough also to say that you don't know and ask for help. Listen, I look stupid all the time. I'm not afraid to say I don't know. So I, I think when it comes down to that, if, uh, and so many people and be able to share what you love, because I've ne I never understood those type of people that say, well, in my hands, I can do this. Well, your hands aren't any better than anybody else's hands. Why don't you share what you got so we all help people out? I just find that ridiculously ignorant and not very humble. But anyways, um, yeah. I, and I make mistakes. Um, I, I make a lot of mistakes and I just learn from them. So I think those things there, I would say, um, you know, work hard, stay humble and don't be afraid. And, and uh, you know, you can, you, there's a lot of things you can do. Philip? Yeah, uh, that's Fantastic. Mine are along that same, uh, the same line. So basically I would say, don't be afraid to, um, uh, uh, well, let me just back up. I should say, don't be overconfident. You get these yeah. students to come in and if you are not scared to do what we do to start out, then you don't need to be in this profession. Now right. you are dealing with people and you're dealing with people's lives and most things you can't mess up, but there are some things that you can. So if you're that arrogant and that overconfident, then maybe you need to go pick something else. But, um, uh, you know, just stay hungry. And I, I tell people the first two years, you're an absolute sponge and soak it up. Be around as many people as you can and learn it all. Uh, as Jim said something perfectly or perfect earlier that I think is great. It's like you think you know it just like in life. And then, you know, so, some people it's five years in, some people it's 10 years in. You realize, holy crap, I, I don't know. I thought I used to know it, but I think uh, it takes so many years to process this profession to really put all the information together that uh, after a certain amount of time, you say, man, what was I doing? Like, what, what, I got to figure this out. So just, you know, just learn, stay motivated. Yeah. I mean, being humble, I think is number one. And another thing that really gets me is always be willing to learn and open to learning because to what you both spoke of, you, you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of students uh, or new grads come in and they think they know a lot. And, and they may, you know, one may be advanced more than the other, but they really don't know what they don't know. And just um, advancing and learning and being open to that is going to make them a better clinician and overall help progress the field that we call, you know, hand therapy, because it's going to take all of us to just push the profession because, you know, one person's not going to be able to do it. We all have to work together, but Absolutely. you, you got to be willing to grow as a therapist. Yeah. I think I've seen so, a lot in the last few years, a lot more um, um, con conglomeration and working together than I ever have. Even when I first started out, yeah. it was, a, it seems to be, it's not the field isn't as clicky as it used to be. And this is just my perspective. Um, you know, and there's, there's, it seems to be, there's a lot more um, people, there's a lot more information that's out there now and people are willing to jump in and help each other out. And um, it's really good to see that. 
It's really good to see. You yeah, there. it is. And and I'm trying to get to your level, trying to trying, <laughs> trying to go around and teach a little bit. <laughs> You're already past it, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I will be in Wisconsin with you. I'm I'm coming to see you talk. So I oh, that's enjoyed awesome. that conference. I had a blast last year. I did have the privilege to to do a talk and a course there and absolutely loved it. So I'm definitely coming back and I'll actually see you in a month. Yes. In right. Chicago. We'll be seeing Chicago yeah. for the IAOM. I'm looking forward to that there. That's so. right. It's going to be a blast. Yeah. All right. So thank you to everyone for tuning in for another episode of getting handsy. Uh, I'll post some of the articles that Jim sent us and you can find him on Instagram at strength underscore therapist 71. And if you can't find him, just check out our Instagram page, Low Country Hands, and you can find him there. So thank you for coming on, Jim. Hey, thank you very much, Bob. Thanks, Philip, uh, for having me. And, and uh, you guys are great. This is awesome stuff. So thank you. Thank <laughs> you.